Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about the interior angles of triangles. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, is my co-host David Wheel, this time coming to us from Maine. David, how is it going? I am well. I, you know, the thing is, when I, when I come up to Maine, I... Uh, I sort of can't recognize myself because I spend time out in the woods and I can, I feel myself understanding George Bush going out to Crawford to clear brush. It's just something that you clear the brush, you clear the mind and, you know, without even wanting to, I, I find myself uh, empathizing with that, with that man. That That is a wonderful but, thing to go out and do uh, as our most dedicated listeners will still not know because I've never mentioned it before. I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, we had quite a, 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 quite a substantial woods in our backyard and just getting to be as a little kid near the woods and just play around like that is, is really tremendous for your imagination and for fun as a little kid, except for all of the ticks with Lyme disease and possible <laughs> bears and then hunters that might shoot you and, Yes, that's that. That all is not ideal, but uh, well, you wrap you just, wrap all that up, and that's how you get Stephen King. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's uh, fantastic imagination and utterly terrifying. Yes, there there are some things. Whereas um, in Ohio, I mean, there's plenty of woods and wilderness in Ohio that I have enjoyed quite a lot. But um, around where my parents live and where I therefore went through middle school and and uh, high school, it's just flat. <laughs> and yeah. and there's 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 a bunch of grass, a couple of trees. Go far enough, you'll run into a bunch of corn. But uh, it's not quite the same as the incredibly hilly um, uh, uh, woods that we used to uh, that we used to live near. Yeah, so, very Calvin and Hobbes like. Exactly. I was just about to say. Well, of course, Calvin and Hobbes is actually uh, Bill Waterson is from Chagrin Falls, Ohio, which is where my oh. which is where my grandparents live. Um, and so I okay. actually, as a little kid. Um, was uh, when I read Calvin and Hobbes, I was very familiar with exactly the kinds of places they were because I'd spent a lot of time there. I didn't. I didn't. Is that know in eastern? Was... Is that in eastern Ohio? Or... It's in northeastern Ohio. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I well, because that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's such a fascinating, huge country. Um, and I was driving up from North Carolina to Maine, and so I went through Western Northern Virginia, not to be confused with West Virginia. Um, but these, these states all come together, you know, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, particularly this, you know, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, there's a tremendously weird border, you know, if you, um, if you care to look at that corner of the country and, um, it's a, it's a fascinating place. This, you know, Appalachia that a lot of we coastal, you know, people, you know, in in quotes, you know, we coastal elites um, could learn a lot more about. Yeah. Having even grown up near a lot of that, I think, was yeah. very helpful for me when I would later move back east. Exactly. Having grown up in New Hampshire, then gone out to Ohio for a long time, seeing what's similar and what's different. Right. Um, just as we all sort of experienced, um, I went from Ohio to Connecticut for college, and everybody would say, oh, you're from Ohio. Do you know such and such from Cincinnati? And you can say, well, that is a three and a half hour drive from where I lived, uh, yeah. because in New England, you can cross, as we were saying a little earlier, you can cross five states in a couple of hours. Right. And that's just a thing you got to be familiar with. Um, 
Yeah, so it actually, uh, in Kim and Hobbes, there's a bit where he climbs on a stegosaurus outside the History Museum. And um, he's really excited about that. And uh, the Cle- it's because the Cleveland Museum of Natural History has a stegosaurus model out front ah. that kids climb on. And as a little kid, I just, I didn't make the connection that he was basing it off of that specific museum because he lived in that area. I just yeah. thought, well, of course, every dinosaur museum has a stegosaurus model out front. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't yeah. it? Um, which is, you know, this is part of my tourism pitch for to Cleveland for anybody who uh, might be listening. We've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've got a world-class symphony orchestra. We've got uh, LeBron James. I mean, we've got a football team that is historic in its own way. Uh, my mother lived there for a couple of years, and um, I spent a week there um, campaigning. And I also commended. I mean, it, I was... You know, I've, I've, I've been falling in love with uh, all of America's sort of mid-sized cities. Mm. Um, there's just, there's so much going on, you know, all over the country. And, um, you know, they're isolated from each other just precisely because in so many cases, the, just the distances between them are so vast. And so, you know, uh, even though it might be a little jewel set into um whatever part of the whatever corner of the country it's it's in um for people living in it it might end up being a little restricted uh just because it's hard to get out of it to other places but um but yeah i just it, i can uh, fully i can also fully commend cleveland yeah it's it's yeah. tremendous i had a, a friend here in dc who was working on a campaign in cleveland just a few weeks ago and i was like oh you can just stay with my parents they'll love having you they're gonna be so nice and she's a dc native who was very sort of nervous about oh i don't want to impose i don't want to <laughs> my parents were so happy to have her there they were so happy to have somebody to show all around town and say oh here's all this great stuff in cleveland let's let we just want to give you a great time about this city and she said it was you know tremendously nice yeah. Um, so, and I, I, I kind of feel that, as you said, there are so many cities where you wouldn't expect that, but it's the case. And the reason that we don't go and spend time in those cities is that they're spread out. Um, yeah. we're here, I mean, I'm here on the East coast and, you know, the great thing about the East coast is that you can get from great city to great city reasonably easily in the Midwest. You can spend a lot of time in a great city, but it's hard to get to the next great city. Um, and that's, I mean, that is, as you say, a little restrictive, but, um, yeah, I, I've always really wanted to just spend a lot of time out in some of the, uh, more, not quite mid, but further West, but not quite Western States, a lot of the great plains States, because I really love just open spaces. And, um, I, I don't know, I've always just wanted to go out to Nebraska and Wyoming and just spend a lot of time to myself under the sky. Um, and yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of great cities there to stop at in the meantime, but you've got to find some time to do that. Right, right. Plus, being yeah. in a wheelchair. And the, and the time the time is not in the next, you know, three or four days because <laughs> the eclipse. Have you been seeing this about the like the price gouging that people are getting into? Oh, uh, so my parents are getting in my uncle's RV and driving around to go see the eclipse with oh, my nice. grandparents and my uncle and. Um, my mom was upset because it turned out that a lot of people were selling fake eclipse glasses. Oh, um, man. and she was worried about whether or not the ones she got were fake, but it turns out they weren't. She got some real ones. Um, and, uh, I'm going to try to watch it here in DC. Of course, we won't be getting the full thing, but, yeah. uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, what is more American 
than <laughs> traveling great distances to see an eclipse and price gouging people. And yeah. I mean, that's just that's just the American way. And another entrepreneur, entrepreneurial while also being traveling great distances. Well, as a, as a segue to our um, topic of the day, I would I would argue that um, the only thing more American than price gouging, you know, for people trying to see the eclipse is uh, the story reflected in this amazing Washington Post article that I hope gets all the all the journalism prizes that are there to be gotten, um, which describes the history of uh, Civil War statues. Yes, yes, lens. I saw this one. This was great. Yeah, through the lens of a... Uh, statue factory in Connecticut that sold the same statue of a mustachioed soldier grasping a barrel into the barrel of his rifle and sort of looking off mournfully into the distance. Um, and they sold it to northern and southern towns, and all they did was change his belt buckle. Um, at least initially, all they changed was was the belt buckle, and one said, you know, U.S. for United States, and the other was C.S. for Confederate States. And I just love this idea that, oh, and the, I mean, the article is just utterly brilliant, it was. but um, in, in so many ways that I don't need, I don't quite need to get into at the moment. But you know, weaving in social history and the backlash against statues of great men, instead focusing on um, sort of uh, symbols of the common soldier, you know, the common figures, uh, ways in which Southern men uh, wanted to agitate for their rights, you know, Southern white men, I should obviously press up, uh, specify, you know, but uh, in the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction, because they were viewed with such suspicion, uh, they sort of allowed their, their wives and sisters and cousins, you know, women uh, who were able to wrap themselves in femininity and say, oh, you know, oh, we aren't a threat. We just want a place to lay our bouquets to mourn on man, you know. Um, and th the way that women stepped into this ferment of political agitation um, and were part of this political process of reclaiming public spaces for... Um, for the reconstitution in a way of the political hierarchy of the antebellum South in reconstruction, you know, against the uh, aspirations of black Americans to claim their rights in that new political space. Um, I mean, just so many different themes that were woven together, all sort of pinned through this, you know, factory of just greedy Yankees. You know? <laughs> Just, you know, exploiting a market opportunity because the foundries, you know, the foundries weren't making cannons any longer and they had to figure out how to, you know, how to put the workers to work and and exploit this new market of, well, okay, we, you know, we aren't making cannons any longer. Let's make big brass statues. Hey, a lot of those war memorials have cannons with them, too. That's, you could have yeah. the whole job as the foundry making non-firing cannons for non memorials. Cannons. Yeah. Yeah, but but in any case, um, you know, I'll, I'll let you uh, tie, the, tie that to our theme if you if you want, or if, if my 
brain is too obscure. If my, the processes of my brain are too obscure, I'll try to. I I think that more than anything else, our listeners view our discussions as a bit of an intellectual challenge and a way to get <laughs> mental exercise. And I think that you just provided them with plenty of grist for the mill of trying to think about what the heck just happened. So. Um, with that, yeah, we'll, we'll segue into our uh, topic for the week. The topic for this week is both sidesism, um, which we're going to sort of briefly define as the tendency to insist when confronted with the knowledge that your side has done something bad politically, uh, to insist that well, both sides do it. They do it as well. We don't. It's a way of deflecting blame and deflecting responsibility by simply pointing out that no one is perfect. And uh, this has been much in the news lately because of the tragic events in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend um, when we were both traveling and did not do a show um, where you had a protest about a statue, about uh, a statue of General Robert E. Lee of the Confederate States that that, that a bunch of uh, pro-Confederate sympathizers, uh, neo-Nazis, uh, and so forth were protesting the potential removal of. They were met by counter protesters from uh, the left. There was violence. Uh, a, a young woman lost her life. Uh, two police officers lost their lives in a helicopter accident while trying to keep the peace. Um, it was a very tragic event. And uh, what brings us to both sidesism here is that President Trump, uh, when he was supposed to do the president's moral duty of helping to bind the nation's wounds during uh, a time of tragedy, he instead chose to say that there was violence on many sides and to try to uh, blame the left for this when the only side that the only side that murdered anybody on the other side were the neo-Nazis and pro-Confederates. And so this is brought up uh, more strongly into uh, the cultural discussion than it, than, ha- than it had been just a few weeks prior, the tendency to say, well, both sides do this. Um, this is often done with more anodyne examples when it's just, oh, well, the Republicans are just politically posturing over this plan, to which the Republicans will say, but both sides do that. We both posture over plans, or vice versa. Um, and uh, I think that both sidesism is is bad because it is a way to deflect responsibility and to prevent yourself from fixing problems. You could view it Either in the uh, the mode of let he was without sin cast the first stone, in which case you'd be arguing that look we don't have to fight each other over everything because we're not perfect, or you could look at it through the what I think is um, the practical effect of it, which is that you aren't really allowed to get some. Nobody ends up fixing their problems when you when they have to resist back every time they're told they have a problem. Um, if somebody tells you you know, hey, you keep leaving your lights on at night, and, they, and you say, well, you leave your lights on at night, too, and nobody ever turns their lights off, they're both going to waste quite a lot of power. At some <laughs> point, somebody is going to have to just do something. Yeah. Um, David, what are your immediate thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I, I agree with the way that you've set this up. Um, I've also heard this referred to as, particularly in the context of uh, international relations and countries accusing one another of various ills um not as both sidesism but what about ism yes because you know some some actor makes some charge against another and the response is well what about this you know what about 
you know, your country's intervention in this other place? What about this history? What about this oppression? And um, I agree that it is a, it's a sleight of hand. It's just a, it's pretty callously and consciously employed um, as a sleight of hand to distract people from, you know, in your words, the responsibility of actually trying to improve behavior. And uh, I think it's, it works, unfortunately. I mean, if it didn't work, we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, it's sad to say it, but it's clearly, that's clearly the case. And in this political, this current political moment seems to be one where many people uh, <laughs> on both sides are questioning the, uh, the the sort of the truths, the established truths of um, sort of the political firmament. You know, and it's whether you're a right-leaning voter who maybe voted for George W. Bush, but then you voted for the man who called Bush a liar in, you know, characterizing the Iraq war. Uh, you know, these right, these alt right people, you know, what's the alt part of that? It's, yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which everything is in ferment and, and is changing. And I think for those types of uh, people, and you know, the equivalent too on the, on the left of you know, people who, uh, so enthusiastically flocked to Bernie Sanders, um, both out of conviction of what he was, you know, being convinced by what he was saying, but also simply because he was an alternative uh, to the the hated establishment figure. Um, you know, everybody is open to um, critique of the establishment, and I think in that moment, the both sidesism and what aboutism. Uh, is is particularly powerful and effective as a tool, um, precisely because people are less willing to fall back on kind of the the true compass of like let's not get distracted, let's focus on what we were doing, you know, let's focus on what we can all agree on, because it doesn't seem like there is any agreement and it doesn't seem like what, you know, quote unquote, what I just said, you know, what we were doing doesn't seem like that's working. And so people I think are, um, you know, they're looking for new answers and the, and the what about ism and, and both sides do it ism. Um, despite the fact that it, all that it does is distract people from actually setting on any agenda, you know, agreeing on any agenda and getting anything done. All it does is distract. Um, it, you know, unfortunately, it, it seems like, um, I think, again, in this moment, it seems like um, a crucial point of debate to say, like, okay, who's, you know, because we're discarding the past, we're discarding all these corrupt institutions that we no longer trust. So we're open to new arguments. And then this seems like part of that argument, even though all it does is obscure uh, what that argument could be. It, it, just, it obscures the terms of, of debate because everybody should be talking about, okay, you know, rather than, well, you, you know, what about this? What about that? Um, yeah. Neo-Nazis 
came with long guns and body armor, you know, to march in public, which is clearly an attempt to intimidate uh, the opposition by demonstrating that they're willing and capable of exercising violence in pursuit of their political goals. That's clearly the case. Oh, well, what about, you know, these leftist thugs who come out call themselves anti-fascists and come out wanting to start fights. Well, what about them? Well, okay, you've just described two things that are wrong, but what's the what's the goal for a functioning political community? You haven't described that yet, right? So, so the what aboutism, the both sides doitism, you know, all it does is um, increase negativity without describing achievable, pursuable, uh, valuable goals, you know, and the goal should be a political society in which people with very different ideas, nevertheless, are still able to organize themselves and publicize their ideas to attempt to persuade other people, you know, including through marches, uh, duly regulated by the state duly permitted and, and all that. Um, well, only one of the that, sides had a permit. Didn't you hear? And that's, I mean, that is part of the argument that might be, um, unpalatable, but has to be addressed. Although the other side didn't actually need a permit for what they were doing, but well, yeah. yeah so, mostly. yeah, but that is a thing that you see. That's a, that's a part of uh, both sides. And what about is, you can just, you can have this issue and then say, oh, but here's this thing I'm going to throw out that isn't really what we're talking about, but yeah. it sort of distracts from one side having to take responsibility. And uh, when you mentioned Bernie Sanders there, um, one of the things uh, in terms of both sidesism that the Sanders campaign sort of uh, created as an issue that bothered me a lot um, is that people say, well, all politicians lie. And so we have Donald Trump come out and he lies just an absurd amount. And yeah. people deflect from this in one of two ways. They'll say, well, it's not a lie because he thinks it's true. He's just not bothering <laughs> to pay attention. Now, I think that is people say that as though they expect it to be an actual defense. And I'm horrified whenever I hear that because they're saying right. that the president can just do stuff. And as long as he keeps himself intentionally ignorant, it's not a lie. I mean, that's the George Costanza defense of it's not a lie if you believe it. And that's that's just a terrible if you ever find yourself making that argument on a regular basis. Obviously, there can be an individual time somebody says something and they were wrong like that happens. Um, But if that's your defense for a person's character, that's really problematic. But the other way that you can defend against that is to say, well, all politicians lie. And part of the problem with this is and that's a, a key part of both sidesism, which is to say, well, both politicians lie. So. When Hillary Clinton puts out her tax plan and her budget numbers during the campaign, they're going to be a little optimistic. They're going to fudge a few things here and there. There's going to be a lot of projections in there. And then Donald Trump puts out his idea for tax cuts and budgets during the campaign. And it's a completely insane fantasy land of numbers that do whatever the heck they want them to do. And right, people it just don't say, add up even on its own terms. Right. right? Well, There's there was that – I mean once counting. he got in, there was that $2 trillion counted yeah. twice thing. But – um, but so you find yourself in a situation where you have an asymmetrical problem and both sidesism is essentially the attempt to take an asymmetrical problem and make it symmetrical. Right. And, uh, we, we see that in the example I just gave where, you know, Hillary can put out numbers that are plausible, but 
not perfect. And because they're not perfect, you say, well, well, her numbers aren't perfect either, so they're both the same. Both sides do it, both sides fudge their numbers, even though the degree is radically different. Well, this brings us to Bernie Sanders. Something that bothered me during the campaign is, uh, as we've said on this show, our goal is to try to get to as close to truth as we can get. We want to get to numbers that are reasonably accurate. We want to get to ideas that match up with reality. And something that frightened me is that the Republicans have, for the last decade, two decades, been doing a lot of imaginary wishful thinking with their numbers. They've been doing a lot of dynamic scoring where they want to say, well, you know, these numbers might not add up on paper, but there will be this high amount of growth because of our plan. And the Democrats weren't doing it quite to the same degree. Again, they always have optimistic numbers. They'll always posit a growth rate that's higher than it will probably be to make things match. The Republicans were getting crazier and crazier with those numbers. And then Trump's during the campaign were just the most bizarrely out there. But then Sanders started to do that too. He said, oh, well, my plans will put into place a 5% growth rate and that'll make all of these things pay for themselves. And I was really just distraught by that because I didn't want to see the Democrats get infected by that degree of wishful thinking that the Republicans had been sliding towards for so long. Because it is, now while it's true that the Republicans have been doing it worse, it's very key to make sure that you, your side, when you're talking internal discussions on your side, you need to make sure you don't get off and go crazy, even though if you're debating with Republicans, you can say, look, our numbers are actually plausible. So it's not both sides in that sense. Um, but when you're talking amongst your own side, yeah, you should try to get your own house in order. But when you're discussing with the other side, it's not a both sides issue if it's asymmetrical. And I mean, there, I think I've given us a little succinct definition of both sidesism, which is to take asymmetrical problems and make them appear symmetrical in order to avoid fixing your own problems. Yeah. And I, uh, I like your reference and I felt similarly, uh, in fact, and it, you know, I, I, I described this political moment and, uh, obviously I'm not running polls, uh, so I don't have quantitative data. I read a lot. So there's qualitative, uh, qualitative sense of things. But one of my most, um, vivid conclusions from this last campaign, last year's campaign was that I actually need to trust my gut on a qualitative level more than I did when thinking about American politics. Because when, when back in 2015, when the discussion was, you know, on the, on the Republican side, it was shock and awe. And Jeb Bush was in my view, illegally collecting campaign funds before he declared himself a candidate. Um, and he was going to buy out the, you know, the Republican primary. And then on the uh, Democratic side, Hillary Clinton was, you know, obviously the anointed successor. And so it was going to be Bush v. Clinton in, you know, in the 21st century. I was disgusted. I was physically disgusted when I started working myself up thinking about that. That in a great democracy that you could have, you know, a great democracy of over 300 million people, you could have um, a, such a sclerotic political system that it would disgorge, you know, the same political dynasties, um, you know, to to run for the highest office. It was sickening, and so I um, uh, was very open to looking at 
Bernie Sanders and looking at, you know, other members of the Republican field and trying to see what, you know, they offered. And um, for exactly the reasons you described, I was turned off by uh, Sanders and basically persuaded myself uh, to see Clinton in a more even-handed way. And I basically, you know, I did, I did my homework and I forced myself to get over that gut reaction. But I think, you know, one of the sobering conclusions of the, of the whole race was, um, I got to the same spot as a lot of other Americans and, you know, I don't know how many of the 65 million or however many it was who voted for Hillary, uh, did it enthusiastically as opposed to having had a similar reaction, you know, as I described, but the, but the simple fact is that too many Americans had that gut reaction somewhat similar to my own, presumably, and they just didn't get over it. They didn't convince themselves, um, to kind of, they didn't do their homework. They didn't think it through. And, um, I think that sort of qualitative go with your gut, um, first hot take sadly was, was all too accurate. Um, um, and that's kind of the, it goes back to the, you know, to the, to the question we're discussing more generally, because, um, the, what about is the both sides, you know, both sides do it is as natural, I think, as basically just hitting back when you're struck, you know, it's like being in the kinder, it's being in a playground and, um, you know, if it's, so we first discussed it as a political tool wielded by, um, specialists who are trying to convince audiences. Um, and I think a large part of the audience, as I described, is, um, questioning their assumptions. And so they're, they're very open to attacks coming from whatever side. Uh, but then partisans obviously are doing the whataboutism themselves, you know, and so they hear some attack or something that they construe as an attack. And so they respond to it with just this sort of flailing response of like, rather than, you know, I am a Republican. I want to, I want the best for my party. So I will uh, listen to critiques with an open mind so that I can better for better perfect my own political group, you know, or I'm a, I'm a Democrat or I'm, you know, remember the green party or whatever uh you know they don't they don't hear those critiques as honest critiques and they just sort of flail back in response um and yeah it's sad it's just <sighs> yeah, no, no one starts to... off saying oh yeah that's a good critique we'll get right to fixing that yeah, you know, I mean, that's... it was a dispiriting thing to think that, you know, I should just assume that more people are thinking with their guts. Um, and I wonder if there's a way to acknowledge the reality that many people do think with their guts, but figure out how to coat the, you know, coat the critique with so much positivity that it comes off 
that it doesn't come off as an attack. Right. You know, or or some other style. I mean, how do we solve this problem? That right? Because when we're describing the we're describing the problem. I think it's obvious to most people, you know, what we're talking about um, in both sides of them. But then, what do we do? about it what do we well i have so my theory which i think i've mentioned a few times before is that if you really go back and look at very heavily covered political races which is usually to say presidential races because that's where yeah. pers- that's where people are really paying at least enough attention that they're familiar with the people as opposed to local congressional races where they might not even know who their congressman is or that there's a special election um but if you go back and look at presidential elections basically as far back as television um, it's the, the thread that I see that seems to be constant is the more charismatic candidate wins. Right. It's not about policy, really. It's not even that much about party. Now, there are some, excuse me, there are some uh, minor distinctions here, um, and sometimes you can quibble over who is really more charismatic than the other. But uh, if we define charisma essentially as being one of the candidates is stiff and awkward on the stage and feels a little rehearsed, and the other one feels looser and a bit more spontaneous, the more spontaneous one tends to win. Right. Um, you could say that George H.W. Bush, who would ever describe him as loose and spontaneous, but you have to remember that he's up against Michael Dukakis. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Much as, you know, George W. Bush, because you look at George W. Bush, he was up against Al Gore. Al Gore got more, you know, got, got won the popular vote, but lost the electoral college in a race that probably shouldn't have been close based on economic indicators and how happy people were with the Democratic party he lost it to george w bush who famously people said they'd like to have a beer with him 2004 you've got stiff john Kerry up against loose uh george w bush and uh Kerry loses then 2008 you've got loose obama mccain is a little looser than most but he's nowhere near the level of um of obama's charisma and then mitt romney stiff person up against charismatic person and then Hillary Clinton, stiff person up against at least looser person if you don't want to believe that Trump is charismatic. So part of the frightening conclusion to reach here is that elections really have nothing to do with policy, (laughs) which is disturbing. I mean, it's you're essentially there's essentially two parts to it. You've got to get a candidate who's good on policy and happens to be charismatic. And the idea that our electoral process is really more a roll of the dice than a cleverly you know, designed thing. That sounds frightening. That sounds dis- yeah. disheartening. But look, I, I happen to think that that just is the way it functions. We either get lucky or not lucky based on whether the charismatic candidate was sane or not. <laughs> and I well, mean, the best thing is, you yeah, can do is, as a party is, behind... is just recruit charismatic candidates. Right. And this more or less is, is what is behind the whole concept of like, you know, the rock for president or Tom Hanks right. for president or the, you know, the ticket, maybe Tom Hanks at the top, the rock at the top, but, you know, just get both of them. And then they'll surround themselves with good people and um, whichever party they attach themselves to, you know. I mean, if you're doing internal party deliberations, which we don't get to do because parties have primaries now, but if you were doing internal party deliberations, I think that what you would say is you're trying to find, amongst all the candidates that would like to run, you're trying to find the candidate who has the best mix of, who has the highest charisma relative to competence yeah and we're learning with trump now i mean a lot of people started to say character doesn't matter during the clinton years because he clearly had bad extracurricular activities but the country was going well so a lot of people said character didn't matter anymore and a lot of republicans were saying of course character matters but that's just because they didn't like clinton and the democrats did like clinton and now we have trump and we're seeing just how much character matters but it's the character that's about the curricular, not the extracurricular activities. 
uh, yeah. Trump's personality flaws are, I mean, they're not equal to Hillary Clinton's personality flaws. They were very different flaws. And what I want to sort of uh, get to is that I think when people want to say, well, there's symmetrical problems, both sides do X, Y, and Z. Um, you sometimes will see when you look, if God helped you, you look at Twitter comments on anything. Uh, you'll see lots of people saying, oh, well, that's just because liberals think X, Y, and Y. Liberals have an attitude of X. And then people say, well, conservatives are incapable of understanding X, Y, and Z. And what I'd like to make the point of is that there's no personality flaw that is inherent to either liberals or conservatives to the right or the left. What there is instead are there are particular human flaws that we all have to some degree or other naturally. And the issue is at any given time, the culture surrounding one of those two parties may uh, mitigate or exacerbate those qualities. And so this is how you can see that the conservatives who 50 years ago were throwing out the conspiracy theorists are now the ones drawing them in. It's not because conservatives are prone to crazy conspiracy theorists like Donald Trump with his birtherism or any of the other insane things he said, it's that a culture may be more or less conducive at a particular time to enhance those flaws. I think that conservative culture has started to go downhill, as I've said before, in the early 90s with the rise of Fox News and uh, Rush Limbaugh and that sort of emotion-based hatred of the other side. The left could find itself in that situation. And as I said with the Sanders example earlier, that was the thing that concerned me because if the left had gone for that, there could have that could have resulted in a cultural shift on the left away from trying to make your numbers match up. The left could have given in to that human frailty of these are the numbers I want to have, so I'm going to pretend those are the numbers. The right yeah, may or, get out of or, it. Or in their own words, not necessarily their own words. I'm not thinking about the Bernie Sanders, but you know we were talking about Antifa earlier. In their words, by any means necessary. Right. You know, and they're talking about uh, you know baseball bats and punching not you know quote-unquote punching nazis but if you really believe that uh it is worth seizing power by any means necessary then obviously you will have no compunctions about lying um and and that's and that's the thing is you know i was talking before i was saying you know how do we how do we fix this and you know, unfortunately um I mean, there's no perfect scenario you know there's there's only the messy and agonizing process of politics or, you know, we know how it goes wrong. You know, we know how we, we know how societies descend into civil war. Um, when these, when the logic of, uh, us versus them and the logic of, uh, justification of, any act to defend the in-group against the out-group when that logic supersedes the logic of political cooperation and, you know, in a word, logic. I mean, when it, when it supersedes debate and reason, you know, we know how that process unfolds. Um, and hopefully, I mean, that, that's kind of the problem is there's no, there's no, there's no utopia to point to that is real. And I guess this is sort of the paradox in this is that um, you can resist the lies and brutality and callous disregard for truth that lead to civil war um, to some extent only with the lies 
that make people happy so that they continue to engage in politics. The sort of, you know, I can see the mountaintop. I can see the promised land. Follow me to the promised land. But let's just do so in a peaceful way. Right? Like, those those are lies, too. I mean, they're, they're sort of... If you're cynical, you call them lies. Uh, if you're... Um, Right, it's the question of when does wishful thinking become a lie. Right, right. Sometimes and you're just being optimistic, I mean, it, and sometimes you're just blatantly lying because you 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 know this is basically impossible. Right, and um, I mean I, I'm sort of pushing back against what you were saying about, I mean what we were both saying actually about Bernie Sanders, because um, and this is the problem is that, um, you I mean you use the word human you know the phrase human frailty, and I think that's absolutely correct is that we are all um, prone to this because life is just really hard and no one has a monopoly on the truth even if um, one or the other side at a particular moment uh, strays further into dysfunction and um, you know misleading rhetoric yeah well, there was a book that I read in college on a class in the French Revolution. Uh, the author's name escapes me at the moment, but as I've just thought of this, been reminded of this now, it was called The First Total War. And it was about mm. uh, the wars of the French Revolution and why they were so much more vicious uh, in many respects than the wars of the 18th century. Um, and part of the conclusion of the book was that when you have this French Revolution, it's based on universal principles. It's based on all of these ideas that they consider to be so sort of true and important and strong that you're setting out to essentially liberate the rest of the world. This is sort of the final war in a way. And um, it's been many years since I read the book, so I may not be doing justice to the argument. But the basic point was that because they viewed this war as being so important that it wasn't one of those normal wars where the king says, well, I want that land and I'm willing to do X to get it. Instead, this was one where the stakes were so high that any means were acceptable and that this brought a a greater just awfulness to the war because there's you've taken all restraints off of your behavior. Um, I mean, I had some issues with that conclusion, in part because I think um, it's possible that the wars of the 18th century were more of an anomaly um, rather than having the Napoleonic Wars be entirely the anomaly prior to the mass mobilization of people. But that's neither here nor there. The basic point is the more you convince yourself that if my side loses, it's disastrous, the crazier the stuff you'll do. And it's fundamentally a problem that when it comes down to it, there's no perfect system. There's no system that can always protect us from someone like Donald Trump. Uh, Somebody, I want to, was it maybe Gary Kasparov, had tweeted um, a few weeks ago that Americans are, under Trump, Americans are learning that a lot of their system was... we were run on the honor system that we yeah. thought we had this rule of laws and not of men. But the truth is every institutional actor has to do their job or it really is just things of men. Men can ignore laws. They always can if enough of them are willing to do it together. And I mean, this is where the fundamental, uh, t- fundamentally terrible uh, nature of the current Republican party comes in because they were supposed to resist Trump and they didn't. Right. Um, right. And in the end, you, you just have to find yourself in a place where you have to acknowledge there's no perfect system. There's no set of rules we can lay down that will always protect us. What we can do is all of us and all of our descendants and everybody who comes after us 
we always have to just try our hardest as individuals. Yeah. And that's difficult. People want a simple, clear rule that they can throw down that'll work for all time. But life doesn't work that way. You're yeah. going to have to make difficult judgments. And that's hard. And people people don't want it to be like that. They want to come up with a simple set of rules that can last forever. Yeah. And I, I agree with that um, on a personal level. I think to some extent, uh, you know, as individuals, we have to... I mean, as an individual, if you think that everything is up to impersonal structures, economic structures, racial structures, um, you know, legal and political structures, um, then it can be, um, you know, that idea itself can rob you of hope, you know, I mean, conceivably, I mean, you can easily imagine how this is the case. Um, you have to believe that your individual action can make a difference if you are going to be motivated to use individual your individual action to try to make a difference, um, even if it is to change the structures, right? Because obviously there is they go both ways. And uh, you know we were talking about this earlier, but um, you know it occurs to me that when we see Trump, um, the in a sense the parasite that has burrowed into the brain of the Republican Party to control it and use it. Um, for ends we know not what um you know there's this there's this uh bizarre george w bush nostalgia that various people are indulging in and you know it occurs to me that um it is obvious in this contrast that whatever bush's flaws he was a personally more virtuous man than trump you know at least in these we were talking about charlottesville you know you could rely on bush to make a statement that accorded with the basic standards of decency that you expect for you know presidents to and after 9/11 he did i mean and after can you he imagine did, where, exactly. a republican right now getting up in an election and saying muslims are not the enemy after a terrorist attack right i like mean john you, mccain started to have made some good things during that campaign in 2008 but it wasn't like it wasn't right after a terrorist attack. I mean, I think he's still voted because I think he's he's better about that. But imagine yeah, no, the, the kinds place, of you, people you who were of... leading the nomination fight last last year. Right, where they're sort of trying, where they're trying to outdo themselves in, um, you know, callousness towards these minorities that they that they scapegoat for all our problems. Um, you know, immigrants from uh, Mexico and and South and Central America on the one hand, and Muslims on the other. Um, you know, and so we know that Bush is more personally decent than Trump, but of course, Bush's personal decency was irrelevant to the fact that the structure, the political party structure that he presided over, um, led towards Trump. It created the opening for Trump to enter, um, you know. Do you think part of the problem with that could be that George W. Bush largely retired from private life after he left office because he wasn't around to keep telling people, guys, you're you're going off course? No, I mean, the, the point is that I I mean, the point is that structure does, in fact, matter. Yeah. Um, you know, that the accumulated individual choices of these myriad of, uh, you know, Republican elected officials, Republican Party heads donors, you know, just all these people over time did cohere into a, what we, what we call a structure that, um, 
you know, that was not open to John Kasich, hmm. Kasich, you know, it, that was open to Trump. Yeah. Um, and actually, I mean, a similar thought, uh, you know, I was trying to, I was brainstorming, you know, what Jeb could have said to regain, to sort of display the kind of alpha male, um, dominance that Trump was displaying, you know, to take some of that from him, to defend himself, to defend his reputation and put Trump in his place. I was trying to, I was thinking about this, you know, a while ago and, um, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, in the debate when, if Trump, you know, after the low energy thing, if Trump had then in a subsequent debate made some critical comment, Jeb could nominally, or at least, you know, what I would have wanted to see, mm. um, would be Jeb, you know, drawing himself up and saying, you know, who, you know, how dare you, who do you think you are? I was the governor of the state of Florida. I represented the, however many million Floridians, um, I served their interests, their interests alongside hundreds of selfless men and women who devote their lives to public service and helping their community. When have you ever done anything for anyone other than yourself? You know, that would have been the critique, but, and it would have, it would have been about personal virtue, right? Which the, which conservatives talk about and prioritize over structure, but he couldn't, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if his advisors even suggested he do something like that. Um, but it would have fallen flat because the Republicans have spent so long mythologizing the businessmen, hmm. you know, that they've, uh, and I mean, and this is to the extent to which, you know, the only extent to which, um, you know, I think the phrase, you know, the, or the concept of neoliberalism is actually, valid is that you know there is this way that the republicans have um emphasized the i mean at the national level they have emphasized the market over the polis you know over the political society to such an extent that uh it would have gone over like a lead balloon you know bush's you know, trump's response would have just been I was a job creator. You know, I ran a business. Who do you think you are? You know? Um, and, uh, and that's because, of, you know, because regardless of what Bush could have done as an individual to display his individual virtues and character, um, his options were constrained by that political culture, by, yeah. you know, by the structure created by and and for the Republican Party. Now, if you want to talk about because this is this this segues, I think, reasonably well into a point uh, that I want to bring up here towards the end, which is that the greatest Republican president, the first um, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, which I consider to be the single finest speech ever given by an American president. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if everybody agrees with me on that, but I, I always tear up a bit reading it. Um, it's, you know, it's reasonably short as all of his speeches were. Um, and, uh, he actually, I was rereading it for an unrelated reason this past weekend. And it occurred to me that there is a fair amount of both sidesism in this speech, but it's done in sort of a different conciliatory way. Right. And this, this, cause of course the status is different here. This is where the war is just about over. 
and um, and he's looking ahead. You know, there's still some battles to go, but he's looking ahead to how are we going to put the country back together? How are we going to bind up the nation's wounds? Yeah. And uh, when you read it, it's he. I mean, I've got a um, a section here that I'll just read. Um, one eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man would, should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. I mean, I think it's it's sort of interesting because that is both sides. He, he even says, you know, both quite a number of times there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, he really wants to um, bring the nation back together after its biggest calamity. And uh, this is over an issue where, I mean, in my opinion, it's pretty clear cut that on one side being right and the other side being wrong. Yeah, Do you absolutely. think, David, that it makes a difference that he's giving this speech with the other side basically defeated? Do you think that there's a difference between conciliatory both sidesism and what one might refer to as argumentary both sidesism? Yeah, or um, sort of motivational both both sidesism. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I think um, the you mentioned before the type of uh, you, you made a reference to the language of religion that Lincoln used so powerfully uh, when you referred to, um, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And there's an interesting, that's an interesting thing to do because, uh, you know, if we're all sinners, then you can look at that and say, well, we're all sinners. We can't get ahead of ourselves. You know, everything we do is flawed. We shouldn't expect too much. And, you know, our reward is in heaven, not on earth. And that could conceivably be a uh, an obstacle to motivation to grapple with and address real pressing social problems and injustices. Um, however... I think, again, you can you can do you can employ this type of language. You can employ this uh, style of describing political realities and you know other people and one's own group, uh, and you can do it using the same technique, but with a sort of positive, constructive motivation, or what you're saying, calling a conciliatory motivation. You know, or you can do it um, just to stir the pot and distract people and break people apart from one another. And um, 
I mean, Lincoln so clearly did it. And, you know, and people like Gandhi uh, talked about, you know, weakness and and failure and self you know, and focusing on one's own flaws. But he did it as a way of saying we focus on our own flaws to purify ourselves of these flaws and then attempt to reach out once we focus on our own failures to offer our hand in cooperation with the other side. And, um, you know, and Gandhi did sort of his, his symbol was, you know, fasting to purify himself of sin before, um, you know, to deny himself, you know, his own body's urges, his own urges, the, the urgent necessity of eating. Right. And this is, um, when we talk about, um, by any means necessary and the ends justify the means, that type of religious based self-denial, I think it's just, a, not everybody has to be religious, but the, you know, thinking about that approach and dwelling on it, I think is a very useful antidote to the hyperventilating, you know, catastrophizing uh, of like, oh my God, if we let those people march, then, you know, it will be like you have murdered us. Like if, if, the, if the state lets those people march, then they might as well have, you know, killed all of us who have, who find their views repugnant. Um, that type of like describing wants and desires and preferences as existence. Um, I, you know, I think the, um, the sort of religious self-denial that you brought up with Lincoln and your earlier reference to, um, you know, to parable and that I just brought up with Gandhi. I think it's a useful antidote to that. Um, even if it, I mean, even if I think we would have to secularize it for sort of use in, in actual politics. Um, because, because that's the thing is if you feel so urgent, you know, about politics, you can't discuss, you know, you can't cooperate or compromise. If everything is life and death, then you're headed, you, I mean, if everything is life and death, you are in civil war. Um, and that's the, that's the terrifying, you know, the things as they are, are not terrifying things as they could very well become right you know that process it's the, the fact that whatever's in your imagination is always scarier than whatever's there yeah and did i i mean did i answer your question i mean i sort of i, oh, sort of... I mean i think somewhat you you also brought up an interesting point which is something that you know as i said i love lincoln's second inaugural yeah one of the things about it is that it doesn't just use a lot of religious imagery but it uses a lot of religious um it uses a lot of religious uh, ideas as sort of justifications that as a result you know fall flat with me um but the you you because i think one of my favorite i think I mean, one of the, i think just the best lines in any presidential speech ever is a part towards the end where he says 
Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid for by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. For me, that's an, you know, it's an interesting phrase because the religious element of it doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, there's a little bit of almost fatalism when you invoke uh, the unknowable judgments of God uh, for why things are happening. Um, that all of this, in theory, could have been avoided, as he even says earlier in the speech, that um, everybody sought to avoid war, but one of them would make war rather than let the Union survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. His, yeah. phrasing, he, his phrasing here is trying very hard to um, to not make it a neener, neener, we won, you guys were wrong. Yeah. Um, but but he, he coats it in some religious imagery that makes it look like nobody could have changed anything. And uh, I mean, th yeah. that makes it a little more challenging for me. But he ends with, I mean, in his last sentence, he says, with malice toward none, with charity for all. And that's, I mean, when I read about Abraham Lincoln, I think people who read a lot about Abraham Lincoln sort of have this. You can imagine this chart for where your level of esteem is for Lincoln. It starts out almost impossibly high because this man is so mythologized. Then right. it dips a bit when you start reading about him and you learn that he was human. And you right. learn that, for example, some people freak out when they find that letter where he said that if he could free some of the – if he could yeah, save yeah, yeah. the union without you know freeing any slaves, he would do it. But it's clear in there that his preference is still to free all of the slaves. And in the end, he does free all of the slaves. Right. Um, and – but I think your your estimation then goes way back up as you keep reading it, because right. what strikes me about Lincoln that makes him so great, we talk about Lincoln a lot and how he's great, but people just sort of generally think, well, because he was president during the Civil War. I think we've 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 retained the knowledge that he was great without constantly thinking about why he was great, which in my mind is essentially the form of both sidesism that he puts in his inaugural address, where it's not so much both sidesism as it is, we don't need to be vengeful. We don't need to hate the other side. I, what I think makes Lincoln so great is that he's always trying to understand the other side's point of view and how to use that to make peace amongst people. He's not vindictive. The whole team of rivals thing, I'm led to believe, is a little overblown. But the fundamental fact is you look at some of those other people who would have been running for the Republican nomination that he got and how would they have approached some of this? And they would have been more vindictive. They would have taken harsher terms on a lot of things, but yeah. because it was Lincoln, because we lucked out and got one of the best human beings who's ever been president to be president at that time. I mean, his character did a lot to help the nation ever come back together again, in my view. Yeah. I mean, I do, I agree with a lot of that. I do, however, have to say that, um, you know, it is possible to imagine that if he had been a little bit harsher or if he had not been so conciliatory as to select Andrew Johnson as his running mate, oh, yeah. and therefore the president after him had been harsher, then potentially, um, you know, Southern blacks would have been granted, you know, they would have been given more support and been given enough um, power or brought, you know, sort of extended the, the cooperation necessary for them to take the power necessary to defend themselves um, during, uh, I mean, what happened during Reconstruction continued long enough to, you know, strangle the Klan in its, in its cradle and, um, and create a sort of self 
self-perpetuating, self-sustaining, um, sort of free black society in the South that would have resisted Jim Crow, or I mean, you know, would have been able to, uh, maintain their legal and political rights as, because they obviously did resist Jim Crow and survive it. Um, yeah, so I, 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 that's what, you know, history is so complicated that any simple position will have a very plausible counter argument. Right. I mean, I would say to that, that one of the big issues though, was that part of what really just ended reconstruction was the 1876 election and the fact the Republicans wanted President Hayes more than they were willing to keep fighting over for, uh, keeping all of their troops in the South. Right. Well, I mean, in a white, in a, it was Northern white exhaustion, you yeah. know, that they just, they were tired of um, extending themselves and penetrating into Southern society to ensure that um, you know, black people were treated like human beings. And yeah, that's that that that's as great a part of our American original sin as the fact that slavery was written into the Constitution to begin with. Um, but one one thing that um, one thing I'd like to share that, that just occurred to me that as a way of you know, we're talking about practice, right? And people have this practice of other of both sidesism, and they they lash out, and it's part of this basic human frailty of you know if you don't feel that you're associated with a group. If someone else is pointing out the what aboutism, what about this, what about that, you know, the other side does this, the other side does that, um, then you'll be distracted by it. If you're a partisan, you will engage in it. Um, but what's, you know, what's a practice for overcoming that? And one thing I've been trying to do is really focusing on describing political issues uh, without jargon or cant and trying to focus on um, as abstract, basic ideas as possible. I mean, even if a even if a even if a particular issue is meaningless without kind of delving into the wonky details, uh, still trying to withhold a certain amount of time to like zoom back out and think about it in you know in general enough terms so that they're so that it doesn't accord with the terminology that like the Republicans or the Democrats use and to try to focus on those kinds of of terms in order to see ways in which parts of the Republicans are talking about basically try to frame issues in a way that like both sides nominally agree or both sides um, can at least be characterized as serving like a value, even if it's not the same value. Um, and it's hard to do. And I'm, I'm not sure even if I've been able to explain myself very well, but, but one of the ways that I've, um, one of the sort of mechanisms that I use to try to achieve that is to try to frame issues in terms of um, mercy on the one hand or harsh justice on the other. Mm. And that's one that strikes me as pretty good at capturing, like if you were to approach a, a societal problem and ask yourself, okay, what would the merciful thing be? And then what would the harsh but just thing be? Then you pretty clearly get like what the Democrats would say to do yeah. and what the Republicans would say to do. I agree. Uh, I agree. And 
and this is where you know thinking of things in those terms it, it helps to um to see i mean this is sort of a cliche but it helps to see both sides of an issue because i mean for example with like you know here i'm in maine and uh the opioid crisis is here as well as many other states and you know there's a debate about um all all over you know appalachia all over the appalachian states of uh you know if someone is a repeat offender and emergency services have been called to their house and they've been you know resuscitated eight times um there's a debate over whether to ban them from receiving those drugs because they're very expensive you know that type of emergency response is very expensive and the merciful thing is obviously not to do that because they're human beings they're suffering from this disease of addiction and they need help to get them off it not you know they need more resource you know an initial investment of more resources to get them out of this addiction rather than um you know denying just a few hundred dollars at this life-saving juncture uh, because they, you know, they haven't earned it, quote unquote. Yeah. But at the same time, um, it's easy to say that, but where's the money going to come from? Right. And in a particular town, in a particular society, if it's a choice between, you know, making sure that, I don't know, the elementary school has working air conditioning or, or whatever, you know, some investment in, in something else of people who, you know, where there's no conflict between justice and mercy uh, versus, you know, cutting off an addict who refuses to help himself, refuses the hand, you know, all the help that has been given so far. You know, how many times have the emergency services come and how many times have they hit rock bottom and they just keep digging? You know, what are you going to do? And so, I mean, that's one framing that helps me get out of partisanship, a partisan mindset. Um, and I'm trying to look for more. Right. Well, I, you know, something that I've noticed so, for some years is that a big distinction in mindsets between the two parties right now is that um, the Republicans tend to be very much more concerned with not letting guilty people go free than with punishing yeah. innocent or needed people and the Democrats, vice versa. Yeah. Um, now, of course, to my mind, so, but you see this for a lot of things. You see this with when they want to put ridiculously harsh punishment, like mandatory minimums on drug cases where a judge could look at this and say, in this instance, this guy does not deserve a stronger punishment. Yeah. Um, but they say that doesn't matter. We don't want any of the people who do deserve a harsher punishment to get off. You see the same thing with welfare where they'll say, well, they're so much more concerned with welfare fraud than they are with the people who, um, who really need it. And you see this with voting rights, where they, they're so much more concerned with the one theoretical person who might cast an illegal in-person vote than they are with the thousands of people who could be disenfranchised because of their system. Right. And they say that that's just fine and just because um, even the people who would be hurt by this should just do something else to fix it. Um, I mean, that's my take on it. Obviously, they would have a different spin on the bleeding heart liberals and how they just let all of this stuff... Um, go away. The one area where I feel like this is actually flipped around, and this is probably just because of its gendered nature, is rape, where suddenly hmm. you have it switched around and the Republicans are so concerned with the innocent man that is unjustly hmm. accused that they want him to get off and not have his life ruined by whatever. And the liberals are the ones saying that the burden of proof should be lower because it has to be yeah. in this type of case. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, there's a lot of unique stuff about rape cases and what kinds of proof you you will have available that just makes that very difficult. 
Right. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very good point of saying that, well, and this gets to the uh, matter of political messaging, that just to be, you know, if you know what audience you're addressing, you should switch your terminology, your sort of your tone and the, the, the type of values you're referring to. Uh, and if you're talking to, you know, a democratic constituency, you should probably focus on the mercy aspect. Uh, and if you're talking to a Republican, you know, group, you should focus on the justice aspect, even if uh, the particular issue, you know, even if taking justice, you could come on either side of a particular question, like you just mentioned about about rape. Like, obviously, it is just for a rapist to be punished, um, but it is also just for someone to uh, benefit from you know, due process of law. Right. Like that is justice. I think the only time and, I've ever heard Republicans in my lifetime be concerned about the rights of the accused is rape cases. Is, is rape. Specifically yeah, no, campus rape cases point. usually involving yeah. well-off white men. I mean, that Stanford right. swimmer example was just kind of horrific where they yeah, were talking, totally he's just got this great life ahead of him. And exactly. Just, yeah. Yeah. No, but I would actually say that's mercy. I mean, that's, that's them. That's yeah. not, but it's a exactly. very selective that's, that's mercy. From, and that's part of what right. Me. Right. Right. Well, no, it, it is very troubling. Um, but, um, because they never say that yeah. about the young African-American kid who's caught with a small amount of marijuana. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. No, I think about that a lot myself, but I mean, I, you know, um, I remember getting into a fight in, uh, you know, I was like in elementary school and I think a lot about, uh, if I had been black, you know, what would they have done with me? Like what kind of, what kind of record would it have left? You know, and would that record have followed me of like, I just got frustrated in class and, you know, was fighting with the, and fought with this kid and like, was like wrestling with him and, and was uh, potentially going to hurt him. Nothing happened, obviously. And I was like five or something, but, you know, but the point is that, you know, black children aren't, are, are, are in so many instances, not afforded that second chance of like, Oh, you're so upset. You must be upset about something. Please, David, you know, tell us what you're upset about. Right. That's not the approach. And, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, we're, we're about out of time now. So I'm just going to, uh, move to our sign off for this week. Uh, I want to talk a bit about what, uh, one of the things I was up to last weekend when I was back in Ohio and, um, how it sort of relates to our, um, connected world and things like Facebook, because uh, last weekend I was back in Ohio to finish off a Dungeons and Dragons campaign that had been going on for a year and a half with a very close group of friends um, where we started playing Dungeons and Dragons together 19 years ago in eighth grade. And uh, when we went off to college, we tried to get together over the summer and run through shorter adventures. We didn't have time for a whole campaign. Uh, Now with technology at the level it is, we play on a somewhat weekly basis uh, over Google Hangouts, um, which is not as much fun as being in person, but it's it's still great. And we really wanted to finish this campaign in person, and I had other reasons to want to be in Ohio, but it was a tremendous experience. And while I was there, I got this group message from a bunch of people in my high school, and they were talking about wanting to do an all Western Reserve Academy, which was our high school, uh, football fantasy league for this coming year. And uh, or fantasy football. I'm so out of it with that thing. I follow football, but I've never done fantasy stuff. I don't even really understand how it works. Um, now, I would I declined that in part because I don't um, I always feel that it, it, it 
dilutes my rooting interests to uh, have a fantasy football thing because I've seen friends who are watching their own team lose and they're like, well, I want that other guy to get three more yards. It just makes me kind of annoyed. I want the purity of rooting for your team. Uh, and when you're rooting for when you're rooting for Cleveland, I mean, there's a certain purity of, of, of rooting there. But anyway, <laughs> this, this had me thinking about how that was similar to what we were just doing with Dungeons and Dragons, which is that I have this group of friends going back 19 years who so easily could have gone other ways. In our connected world, you can still see them on Facebook, post happy birthday once a year or something like that. But the fact that we found something to keep doing together at a distance has really kept us together. The idea, as these friends were saying of a high school league, I mean, I didn't want to do the fantasy football, but the idea really pleased me that, that you, know, you can be connected but not ever really talk. And there were a lot of these little activities that once you start doing them, they're pretty great. And this show, Doing With You, David, has been like that for us because yeah. you know we message things back and forth in emails and Facebook every now and then, but it's nothing like what we've been doing just to prepare for each show and the conversations we get before each show starts. So I just want to put that out there for everybody that if you've got you know a group of friends you've drifted away from uh, and maybe you see them on Facebook or whatever, but you almost never talk to them, Find some activity you can do at a distance with them. Uh, find some regular thing, even if it's not every week, just something you do every now and then that just keeps you in contact because, uh, you know, it feels really great to have a single group of friends and memories that go back 20 years and still be making new memories of that type. So I just want to leave you all with the notion that uh, that's something you should consider. See you next week. <laughs>